0: Welcome to the Inside the Board Study Smarter Series, dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed on your exam. Hi everyone, this is Pranay Bonagiri, your ITB host today. Today's episode is the endocrinology episode of the Step 1 Study Smarter Series. Unfortunately, I don't have an esteemed guest joining me today. But if you can put up with listening to me alone for the rest of the episode, I promise to review some super important endocrinology topics and pass on some important tidbits and pearls that I have learned throughout medical school and studying for both Comlex Level 1 and 2 as well as USMLE Step 1 and 2. With that, let's get started on question number one. So we have a 35-year-old woman presenting to the clinic with insomnia, irritability, and worsening fatigue. The patient also reports having lost 5 kilograms in the last 2 months, despite eating more than usual. Her vital signs are notable for a pulse of 130 beats per minute, and her physical exam is positive for tremors, bulging eyes, and a diffusely enlarged thyroid. Which of the following changes in the thyroid function tests are most likely to be seen in this patient? Would it be A, a low TRH, a high TSH, and high T3 and T4? low TRH, low TSH, high T3, T4, or C, high TRH, high TSH, and low T3, T4, or finally D, low TRH, low TSH, and high T3, T4. So the correct answer for this question is actually D, low TRH, low TSH, and high T3 and T4. The reason for this is this patient is exhibiting the classic signs and symptoms of hyperthyroidism. You can tell based on his insomnia, irritability, and worsening fatigue. The bulging eyes described in the question is trying to get at exophthalmos, which points towards Graves' disease, which is also known as the toxic diffuse goiter. This is an autoimmune disease of the thyroid, resulting in production of autoantibodies against the TSH receptor on the thyroid. So this in turn stimulates the production of T3 and T4. So one of the, the correct answer choice has to have a high T3 and T4. Because the thyroid hormone system is a negative feedback loop, increased thyroid hormones, meaning T3 and T4, would reduce the production of TRH and TSH. Therefore, the correct answer is D, low TRH, low TSH, and high T3 and T4. So hopefully that question wasn't too difficult. If you haven't guessed, there is a 100% chance that hyperthyroidism will pop up on your step one or level one. I think it is just too common of a disease for the test writers not to include it. Before we move on, I just want to tell you some other key points about hyperthyroidism that might be helpful. So we covered a few of the symptoms in the question stem, but hyperthyroidism can present with a wide variety of symptoms. An easy way to remember all of the various symptoms is to group them by organ system. For example, hyperthyroidism will manifest in the GI system as diarrhea and hyperdefecation. In terms of musculoskeletal complaints, a patient may present with proximal muscle weakness or osteoporosis. Cardiovascular symptoms and signs include tachycardia, palpitations, shortness of breath, chest pain, and hypertension. Patients may be very anxious, restless, and hyperactive, and in general they also complain of increased appetite but weight loss at the same time. The last major symptom to remember is heat intolerance. So now that we've covered hyperthyroidism, I want to move on to question two. So we have a 23-year-old man who sees his primary care physician due to several distinct episodes of severe headaches, anxiety, and heart palpitations. During these episodes, he also reports sweating. Currently, his vital signs are within normal limits. On physical exam, there's pectus excavatum, a high arched palate, bilateral pes cavus, and elongated arms. Which of the following laboratory measures is likely elevated in this patient? Is it A, calcium, B, calcitonin, C, phosphate, or D, insulin? So the correct answer is B, calcitonin. Based on this patient's presentation, he likely has multiple endocrine neoplasia type 2B. This syndrome is characterized by medullary thyroid carcinoma, mucosal neuromas, pheochromocytomas, and amorphanoid habitus. The latter two are present in this patient. The symptoms the patient is presenting with, episodal, headaches, anxiety, and palpitations, points towards pheochromocytoma. Medullary thyroid carcinoma occurs in almost all men-to-be patients. So if you're suspicious of men-to-be, you should screen for medullary thyroid carcinoma. So this is a cancer of the C-cells or parafollicular cells of the thyroid gland, which release calcitonin. Therefore, the correct answer is B, calcitonin. That's what will be elevated in these patients. The multiple endocrine are pretty high yield for the step exams just because they are diseases with a genetic basis, and I feel like test writers really like to focus on them. So I want to cover some other important uh, tidbits and points about these diseases. So I think it's important to know that all of the MENs are autosomal dominant. For MEN2, the issue is in the RET gene, the RET gene, while for MEN1, the issue is in the MEN1 gene, which encodes a protein called MENIN, which is present on chromosome 11. Y'all should also be able to differentiate between the three MENs on the test. I already described MEN2B for y'all, so you should probably guess that MEN2A shares some similarities. MEN2A is also characterized by medullary thyroid carcinomas and pheochromocytomas. Instead of mucosal neuromas, though, or the morphinoid habitus, these patients have parathyroid hyperplasia. MEN1, on the other hand, is characterized by pituitary tumors, pancreatic tumors, like gastronomas, insulinomas, VIPomas, and glucagonomas, and they also have parathyroid adenomas. So moving on to question three, a 24-year-old woman comes to the clinic for her annual wellness visit. She has no complaints, but does report a 10-pound weight gain recently. She also thinks her face has gotten rounder and has noticed increased facial hair. Her blood pressure is 152 over 94. She has a pulse of 70 beats per minute, and her respirations are 16 per minute. Which of the following would be the next best step in this patient's diagnosis? Is it A, 11 p.m. salivary cortisol, B, an 8 a.m. serum cortisol, C, 2 p.m. serum cortisol, or D, 8 a.m. plasma ACTH? So, this patient is presenting with symptoms of Cushing syndrome, also known as hypercortisolism. The part of the question that should kind of clue you in is the fact that she's had a 10 pound weight gain and she doesn't have any other symptoms, as well as her round face, which is kind of describing the moon faces that these patients get. She also has increased facial hair, which is a well-known symptom that occurs with Cushing syndrome. Other classic signs and symptoms or clinical findings not mentioned in this stem include skin changes such as thinning or striae, osteoporosis, hyperglycemia, amenorrhea, and a buffalo hump. The first step in diagnosis of Cushing syndrome is to have two positive tests of the following three. So the three tests are increased 24-hour urinary cortisol, an increased late-night salivary cortisol, or an inadequate suppression of the one milligram low-dose dexamethasone test. In this case, the correct answer is A, the 11pm salivary cortisol. So once again, Cushing syndrome and its diagnosis are pretty important high-yield topics for step 1. So it's also important to know what you do after you make the initial diagnosis. So after you do the initial testing, the next step is to determine the etiology. To do this, the next step is to measure serum ACTH, which will tell you if the syndrome is ACTH dependent or independent. If the ACTH is suppressed, the patient is ACTH independent, which points towards either exogenous glucocorticoid use, which is the most common cause, or an adrenal tumor. If the ACTH is elevated, then the Cushing syndrome is ACTH-dependent. The ACTH-dependent causes include ectopic ACTH secretion, for example, from a a lung cancer, or Cushing disease, which is a pituitary tumor that secretes ACTH. To differentiate between the two, you can use the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test or the CRH stimulation test. CRH is corticotrophin-releasing hormone. If there is adequate suppression in the high-dose dexamethasone suppression test or increased ACTH and cortisol production in the CRH stimulation test, then you most likely have Cushing disease, which is the pituitary tumor that secretes ACTH. If there is no response in regards to suppression or ACTH and cortisol levels, then the likely cause is an ectopic ACTH production coming from somewhere in the body. This testing algorithm is important for step one because you might be asked how to interpret the results in a question stem and then try to figure out what the likely etiology of a patient's Cushing syndrome is. So moving on to question four. A 70-year-old man presents to his primary care physician for a follow-up appointment for his type 2 diabetes. He brings a blood sugar log and shows that his blood sugars have occasionally been as low as 40 milligrams per deciliter. When asked about these recordings, he says he doesn't have any symptoms and just chews some candy to make his glucose go back up. His HbA1c from 2 months ago was 7.2. He is currently taking metformin, gliburide, liraglutide, and dapagliflozin. Which of the following is the most appropriate adjustment to his current diabetic regimen? Is it A, to continue the current regimen, B, stop gliburide, C, stop liraglutide, or D, stop pagliflozin. The correct answer is B, to stop gliburide. Globuride is a second generation member of the sulfonylurea class and is known to cause hypoglycemic episodes. Even though it does not seem like this patient is experiencing many symptoms during his episodes, hypoglycemia can be pretty dangerous in the elderly, so this drug should be stopped. I also want to take this time to briefly review some of the mechanisms of action and side effects of the major classes of oral hypoglycemics, because I think these will definitely come up on the exam. So starting with sulfonylureas, they work by closing the potassium channels on the beta cells of the pancreas. This causes cell depolarization and subsequent insulin release via an increased calcium influx. The common drug names I would remember in this class are chlorpromamide, glipizide, and gliburide. Besides hypoglycemia, they can cause weight gain, and the first generation of this class, which clopromamide is one of, can cause a disulfiram-like reaction. Now the single most important oral hypoglycemic is metformin. Its exact mechanism of action is not known right now, but it basically inhibits hepatic gluconeogenesis, increases glycolysis, and increases peripheral glucose uptake. The most notable side effect to remember is lactic acidosis. This is why metformin is actually stopped for patients who come into the hospital with sepsis. The GLP analogs, exenatide and liraglutide, obviously act as their name suggests. They act as agonists for the glucagon-like peptide receptor, which acts to decrease glucagon release, decrease gastric emptying, and increase glucose-dependent insulin release. The most important side effect is pancreatitis. The dipeptidyl peptidase 4 inhibitors, or DPP-4 inhibitors, do what their name suggests. Examples of these drugs include linagliptide, saxagliptin, and sitagliptin. They can be remembered because of their gliptin suffix. DPP-4 is the enzyme that deactivates GLP-1, so the DPP-4 inhibitors have the same effects as the GLP-1 analogs. The unique side effect for them though is an increased risk of respiratory and urinary infections. The last class that I think is worth mentioning are the SGLT2 inhibitors. They can be remembered by their flozin suffix. Examples are nagloflosin, dipagliflozin, and empagliflozin. They block glucose reabsorption in the proximal convoluted tubule. Their unique side effect is an increased risk of UTIs and vaginal candida infections due to glucosuria, which is more glucose in the urine. So on to question number five. We have a 32-year-old man who presents to the emergency department with frequent headaches and visual difficulties for the past few months. He also reports pain in multiple joints of his hands, excessive sweating, and an increase in his shoe size. On physical exam, you note coarse facial features with frontal bossing and a protruding jaw. The patient has a blood pressure of 140 over 90. Which of the following is associated with this patient's disease? Is it A, carpal tunnel syndrome, B, restrictive cardiomyopathy, C, hypoinsulinemia, or D, bone tumors? The correct answer is A, carpal tunnel syndrome. Carpal tunnel syndrome is associated with agromegaly which is evidenced in this patient's physical features and symptoms. Carpal tunnel syndrome in this case is due to edema of the median nerve. So I also want to take this time to review some key points about acromegaly. Besides the findings I mentioned in the stem, other symptoms and signs include a large tongue and a deep voice. Additionally, these patients are at increased risk of colon cancer. To diagnose acromegaly, the first step would be to get a serum IDF, which would be increased. The important diagnostic test to remember is the oral glucose tolerance test, which tests to see if the serum growth hormone decreases in response to oral glucose. In acromegaly, it does not. Acromegaly is typically caused by a growth hormone secreting pituitary adenoma. So first line treatment is surgical resection. Side note, if you guys have never seen how they remove these tumors, just Google transphenoidal adenoma resection And watch a video because they're actually very cool and interesting. So moving on to question six, we have a 50-year-old man with no significant past medical history who undergoes a decompressive craniectomy for an acute subdural hematoma following a traumatic head injury that occurred 24 hours ago. He is now currently in the intensive care unit and remains intubated and ventilated. His urine output is recorded as 800 milliliters over the past two hours. Which of the following is most consistent with the patient's likely diagnosis? Is it A, urine-specific gravity greater than 1.005, B, serum sodium less than 135 millimoles per liter, C, urine osmolality less than 300 millimoles per kilogram, or D, serum osmolality less than 290 millimoles per kilogram? The correct answer is C urine osmolality less than 300 millimoles per kilogram. This patient most likely has central diabetes insipidus secondary to a traumatic brain injury. In central diabetes insipidus, otherwise known as DI, patients are unable to concentrate urine due to a lack of ADH. Out of the four options I gave you, only a urine osmolality of less than 300 indicates dilute urine. An important concept to know for step one is to know how to differentiate between central DI and nephrogenic DI, and how you can use the water deprivation test to tell the difference between the two. So central DI is caused by the inability to make DH for whatever reason, whether it's trauma, as in this patient, or a tumor, autoimmune condition, surgery, etc. On the other hand, nephrogenic DI occurs when the kidney is insensitive to ADH. They both have the same clinical laboratory findings because they both result in super dilute urine. These findings include a urine specific gravity of less than 1.006, urine osmolality less than 300, or serum osmolality greater than 290. To differentiate, you can use the water deprivation test, which basically measures the change in urine osmolality after deprivation of water and then subsequent administration of an ADH analog. In central diabetes insipidus. when you add the ADH analog, the urine will become more concentrated because the issue is with ADH production, not its function in the urine. The opposite will be true for nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. so you can use the water deprivation test to tell the difference between the two. So now for the last question I have, Question number seven. We have a 45 year old woman who presents to the office with complaints of easy fatigability, lethargy, and constipation for the past six months. She also reports a six kilogram weight gain. On physical examination, there is dry skin, brittle nails, and swelling of the pretibial area. A midline neck swelling is noted. Which of the following laboratory tests is most likely present in this patient? Is it A, anti thyroid peroxidase antibodies? B. Antithyroid-stimulating hormone receptor antibodies. C. IgG4 antibodies. Or D. Anticyclic citrullinated peptide antibodies. The correct answer is A. Antithyroid peroxidase antibodies. The patient is reporting symptoms of hypothyroidism. Other signs and symptoms include cold intolerance, decreased sweating, and proximal muscle weakness. I just want to note real quick that both hypo- and hyperthyroidism can both cause muscle weakness. They can be differentiated though because the muscle weakness and hypothyroidism is associated with an increased creatinine kinase. Meanwhile, the creatinine kinase and hyperthyroidism is normal. So back to hypothyroidism. Some other common symptoms and signs associated with it are carpal tunnel syndrome, depressed mood, Decreased reflexes and bradycardia. So, the most common cause of hypothyroidism in iodine sufficient regions, meaning developed countries, is Hashimoto thyroiditis. This disease is characterized by autoimmune destruction of the thyroid. Antibodies can develop against various thyroid antigens, but the most common is antithyroid peroxidase. The other important antibody to remember for Hashimoto disease is the antithyroglobulin antibody. Because Hashimoto isn't the only cause of hypothyroidism, it is important to be able to differentiate between the other causes that y'all will encounter on the test. I think the easiest way to do this is to focus on the thyroid exam. The other two diseases that will pop up on the exam will probably be subacute granulomatois thyroiditis, also known as Quervain thyroiditis, and rhodol thyroiditis. On the thyroid exam, Hashimoto will have an enlarged but non-tender thyroid. Subacute thyroiditis will likely have a very, very tender thyroid. Subacute is associated with viral infections, so I try to remember it kind of like a lymph node, because when you have an infection, the lymph node is tender, so is the thyroid in this case. Lastly, Rydell will have a rock-like, hard-fixed thyroid. This is because in this disease, the thyroid is replaced by fibrous tissue. This disease is also associated with IgG4 antibodies. So that's the last question I have for you guys. As always, it's been a pleasure covering these high yield board topics with y'all. Hopefully I was able to make your commute or wherever you're listening more informative. And with that, we can end this episode. Once again, thank you everyone for listening.